Today's episode of State of the Game is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. For a free trial and a free audiobook download, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash SOG. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash S for State, O for Of, G for Game. For a free trial and free audiobook download. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 45 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're going to meet one of the more intriguing characters of the PGA Tour of the last decade and a half, a man who's been tipped as a potential future commissioner of the organisation and whose recent retirement from the game garnered plenty of attention among players and press alike. Joe Ogilvie will join us in just a moment. But before we chat with Joe, let me introduce my co-host for the day from the US and no doubt looking forward to hearing Joe's thoughts on the state of the game. Commentator, blogger, author, Golf Channel, regular Jeff Shackford. Shack, this should really be a fun chat with Joe today. Yes, Joe's uh, one of those rare tour pros who who uh, reads and thinks and has lots of fun stuff to say. So always enjoyable to hear his thoughts on what's going on in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no shortage of stuff going on, which we will get to. From here in Australia, a man who knows what it feels like to retire from the professional game, though he's as busy as he's ever been with magazine columns, course design work, and the occasional over-50s event to play. And it's a welcome to Mike Clayton. Clayton, I'm sure you'll be able to allay any fears Joe might have about finding things to do once he's hung the bats up. I'm sure Joe, I'm sure Joe will be fine. <laughs> Don't, my reading suggests he's not going to struggle. To the man himself... Joe Ogilvie turned professional in 1996, played a total of 15 years on the PGA Tour and two seasons on the secondary tour. He won the 2007 US Bank Championship in Milwaukee. It was his only tour victory, but he's at least as well known for his thoughtful insights on the game and the tour and his role on the Players' Advisory Committee. There's an awful lot to chat to Joe Ogilvie about. We look forward to doing so over the next hour or so. Joe, thanks for taking some time. Welcome to State of the Game. Hey, it's fantastic to be here. I'm a big fan of the uh, podcast. That's very nice of you to say, and might I say, all my readings suggest you may have just lifted the IQ of the entire panel quite significantly just by being here, so we thank you <laughs> for that. Joe, I'm kind of joking about that, but uh, you know, reading around before we, uh, we chatted today, just about everything I read about you almost opens with the sentence, he's one of the most intelligent players on tour, I and mean, you must see that plenty yourself. Is that uh, a compliment, annoying, neither or both? I think it's, you know, it's more guilt by association. I, I've always thought that the, the key to success is surrounding yourself with people that are a hell of a lot smarter than you are. And, um, you know, I've kind of done that outside of the golf game, you know, outside of the golf world. But also, you know, I tend to gravitate to the players that are also kind of, you know, they can talk about other subjects. I mean, you know, the, you, the freaking guest, guest here and Ozzy himself, Jeff Ogilvie, is I love playing practice rounds with Jeff because we're not talking – we are talking about golf. Um, he he tends to get golf more than anybody, I think, on the PGA Tour. But it's just an intriguing conversation. I'm, in, I'm insatiably curious. So I don't know if I'm smart or not, but I'm definitely curious. I've taken your, uh, your advice on board, surrounded myself with Shackleford and Clayton. It's done wonders for me. It, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> It, seriously, it uh, it works a treat. Of course, you mentioned Jeff Ogilvie. The two of you are, well, you're constantly mistaken for him. I, I read something that suggested there was even a tour event one time when they put his board behind you while you were practicing on the range. Well, I mean, that's, 
it's happened more than once. And, and, and as I've told him, I, I'd gladly trade his um, <laughs> my one championship for his U.S. Opens and his WGCs. And, um, you know, he's uh, he's six. He's six, three. He's cut and um, he's got a, you know, long language swing that's perfect. And, and I'm I'm five, ten and not cut. Um, so I'm gladly to be mistaken for Jeff every now and again. <laughs> Of course, his name uh, his name ends in a Y. Joe, there's a lot of stuff we want to talk to you about, but I, I wanted to start by talking about your start in the game. Uh, as I said, I did some reading about you. Everything talks about both being intelligent and, of course, interested in the stock market and finance and those sorts of things. Your start in professional golf. Um, you gathered around some investors. Uh, tell us a bit about how you did how you, what you did there, how you got started in playing the game professionally. It's a really intriguing story. Yeah, you know, I, I when I graduated from Duke in ninety. 90- Six, um, you know, I was like everybody else. I mean, golfers, you know, your 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 job is golf, and so you haven't accumulated any funds. Um, and I was one of those guys; I'd never had a job outside of golf, and um, I didn't have any money. So my dad and parents said, "Look, we, we'll give you four thousand dollars to start, and um, you know, we'll see how we'll see how long that takes you." And that took me about a year and a half, and I went to, I went to the Q school. Got my what's now called the web.com tour card and um, promptly missed my first three cuts. And I, I got a little nervous. And um, I'm from a small town in just south of Columbus, probably about an hour south of Columbus. And um, grew up at a, you know, Donald Ross designed nine holes to start. And then, then um, another 18 followed about 40 years later. And a bunch of the members that I grew up with, um, older guys, you know, friends of my dad, um, I kind of scraped together $46,000 in $2,000 increments. And I basically sold 26 or sorry, uh, 23 shares and paid them back. Basically I took, I think I took 10% of the first 46,000. They got 90, then 50, 50, and then 80, 20 towards me. And it was capped at, um, it was capped at like 138,000, I think. And I got everything above that. So they got about a 92% return, and um, luckily I didn't, uh, I didn't need sponsors after that. Clay, that's intriguing, isn't it? I remember Matt Goggin told us he started with $5,000 borrowed from his grandfather. How did you get started? These are the things that people don't think about with professional guys. This has got nothing to do with holding putts and hitting the ball, has it? This is about just being able to get out there and have a chance to play. How did you get cracking clays? How did you manage it? Uh, I got, my uncle gave me $1,000, and he said, Go and play, and if you need some more, come and see me again. But so, and I, like Joe, I, I made a couple of cuts early in Australia, and then I missed three cuts in a row. I thought, my God, this is not so easy. But I made it. Everyone remembers their first decent check. I made three thousand dollars in the Australian Open, finishing ninth. There you go. Felt like a fortune. Felt yeah. like ben, what did Ben Hogan make? Two hundred and seventy-six dollars or something. So it was the biggest check he ever made in his life. Yeah, my check was, I think I made $1,500 on the Powerbilt tour in North Carolina. I came home and I thought, I'm rich. I'm rich, yeah. <laughs> And then my dad took me through how I still had to make a car payment. I was still living at home. I didn't pay insurance. And um, <laughs> it was a quick, it was a, it was a quick. Uh, <laughs> things got real. <laughs> yeah, really quick. I, what, I remember Matt Goggenthal, I think he's, he remembers his first big check was $11,000. I mean, he bought a stereo for his, and a new car, a stereo for his car, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fantastic. See, it's, from from my reading, Joe, it sounds like your dad was a very, very sensible man. That story where I sort of got that info about, uh, he must have had a big influence in 
not just that, but your interest in stock markets and finance and all those other things, which I think you've now sort of gone into having hung up the bats a couple of weeks ago at the Wyndham Championship. Yeah, you know, he, he's, I mean, my dad's a pal of mine. And I think that growing up, I'd, I'd watch him. He influenced me in ways that, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I saw him putting on a suit every day. I saw him reading the Wall Street Journal every day. I saw him watching uh, various financial news or whatever. He He's a guy that constantly read. Um, and we played a lot of golf together. He's, he's a lawyer by trade. And I played, you know, luckily I had a, I had a club pro named Joe Cardenas that um, was wonderful to me. And he let me play. Um, you know, with the guys and at the time, you know, all clubs had kind of times where juniors couldn't play and he kind of relaxed those rules for me. Um, and I was very fortunate. I, I grew up and I played with doctors and lawyers and accountants and, um, just various businessmen. And, and that's how I kind of, I, I liked business and I kind of liked golf because of the, of, of the relationships and the people you met. And, um, it was fortunate. I was a very immature kid talking to people my own age, but I was pretty mature talking to people who were, you know, 20 years my senior. Um, and it was a, it was a, golf was a big part of that. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it because of that. That's not really uncommon in golf. One of the great things about golf for young people is that um, introduction to the adult world that you get on the golf course, isn't it? If you're a junior at a golf club, invariably you end up playing with older people and you learn stuff about the world that you might not otherwise. That curiosity, uh, Joe, and that... Um, that sort of thirst for knowledge and being interested in things outside of golf. Do you think that hinders or helps a professional golfer? One might be able to make the case that being single-minded about golf might be the best way to be successful in golf. Yeah, I think that the, I think it depends on who you are, really. I mean, I'm a I'm not a guy that's going to sit back and, and and I don't want every position. I think that <laughs> I think the more I use video, the worse I got. Um, and so when you're a when you're a creative thinker or you think about golf from an artistic standpoint. Um, I think that having broader horizons kind of helps if you're very technical or whatever, and that's all you think about. I think, you know, that's, it, it, it can help you, but I do, but I do think that it helps you deal with adversity. Um, you know, I think Rotella wrote a book, golf's not a game of perfect. I think the more experiences you have outside the game, you realize that life isn't perfect. Um, and, um, it kind of helps to have that sensibility when you're playing the game because golf is, I mean, golf is really hard and you don't get always, you don't always get the, the breaks that you should get. Um, and just understanding that, I think it helped me a little bit. What's your take? You're one who's got interests far beyond just golf. You're an avid reader and you listen and listen to and engage in all sorts of stuff beyond just golf. Was that, how did you find that for you looking back on your career? Do you think that was a hindrance or a help perhaps? No, I think it was a help. I'm a, you know, I wish I'd done more different things. I mean, you, you, no, no matter how much you have interest outside of golf, you still, when you're playing, you're still obsessed with it. You still, at least I found it, you're always thinking about it. And uh, it would have been good to get away. And I mean, being in Europe for so long, there were so many great things to do that we never did. Just because we didn't, because we were thinking about golf all the time. But um, yeah, you know, by its nature, it's an obsessive game. You get obsessed by it and you're constantly thinking about it. And I guess that's the – I think Joe said, Joe, when you finished up a few weeks ago, it was like leaving school. And it it yes. kind of was that way for me. It was, you know, the tour was – it was almost like literally leaving school again. You just you – know, you're out there with your mates and, you you know, it's a bit more grown up than school, but it's not a whole lot different. And it's certainly not the real world. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, you know, it's a weird thing, and I don't know if you felt it, Clates, but 
you know, I just went on, I just got back from a golf trip in Oakmont or to Oakmont and which is an incredibly brutal golf course. Yeah. Um, but a lot of fun. And almost immediately, as soon as I, um, hung up the professional spikes. I mean, all of a sudden I started playing shots that were kind of fun again. I mean, you know, I, I try to curve at 15 yards, which is tough to do with the modern ball and, and equipment, but I started, I started seeing bigger curves again, which is fun. I mean, that, that's when I had the most fun is when I used to see giant curves and, and yeah. could do whatever I wanted with a golf ball. And I don't know what it was because I was, I wasn't supposed to do that when you're playing on tour, everybody hits it so straight, but I had actually had a lot more fun, kind of uh, playing the game um, just as a regular guy. And plus, I didn't play the back tees, which is even better. Yeah. <laughs> for, for um, I mean, I play with a couple of old McGregor Woods, which is fun. You know, three and a forward, they're great fun to play. And people don't understand why I don't want to score. You go and play on Saturday at the club, and it's like, you and the comp, no. I, I, <laughs> I scored for 30 years. The last thing I want to do is go and score. That's when I play golf. Hit the ball, have fun, have a match. Yeah, but, I mean, amateurs get to... And it's certainly in Australia, more so in America, because every time they play, there's some sort of competition. You, you know, you've got to put a card in every time you play, and it just seems like they get way too obsessed with scoring. Which was the fun thing about going off the tours. I don't care what I score anymore. I, just, I can just go and play golf and hit the yeah. curves and play with the funny clubs and kick it out of the rough if you can't be bothered slashing out the long grass. And you know, golf's much more fun when you don't care how you score. I think. But. Oh, it's an intriguing one, Clayton. I know you brought this up on a forum down here, and. And most people didn't agree with you, and I have trouble agreeing. I can see your point, but as an amateur, what do you reckon, Shaq? The score's kind of important when you don't do it for a living. It's why you play golf in a lot of ways, isn't it? What's your take on the importance of score? Because Mike's put this up before, hasn't he? Clayton's has said this before. Well, you hear people uh, who are fairly new to the game. That's their barometer. That's the thing that gets them excited and gives them a goal. Uh, but I, I, uh, I do know what... Clayton's point is, and that's probably related more to just uh, long term. It, it's uh, it's not how the game started. People obsessing about score and handicaps and that kind of thing, and it was more about playing the course and playing a match. And uh, and I, you know, we of course architecturally we long to get back to that because I was just thinking about a, a course design related project today and and i there was i was thinking wow wouldn't it be great if they were just thinking about match play they wouldn't care about this hole and uh so that's why we get hung up on on that um but gosh you know i i know some new golfers or people i meet and they'll they'll they you know they want to tell you about what they shot and uh what they the the, the new barrier they they uh, crossed and that's uh i understand it there should be a one eight hundred number for that, shouldn't there, Shaq? So yeah, where they can just call it. and, and right. just just talk to somebody who loves hearing a, the yeah. blow blah blow of the round. And that was my brother's idea years ago. He said, you know, if there was a one eight hundred number, there'd be a lot of happier wives out there on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> you ring them, and they'll listen to like a lifeline for golfers, and it's their job to listen. Joe, when you started playing professional golf to when you finished playing professional golf, time of enormous change with technology. I was just watching the Web dot com tour coverage this morning. And they had some of the guys on the range, Phil Blackmar had brought along his old person and drive, and they are getting some of the guys to hit it, and they were sort of looking at it, and a lot of them hadn't hit one before, or sort of hadn't seen one for a long time. What are some of the changes in the game that you noticed from when you started to when you finished, in, just in technology in, in clubs, and, and what sort of impact do you think that's had on the game? It's one of our favourite topics here at State of the Game. Well, I, th- I, you know, I think that you know, when I first got on the PGA Tour, I, th- I, I thought I was one of the better drivers of the golf ball, pound for pound, and I averaged 
278 yards and was ranked 41st in driving distance. Metal or wood? Uh, metal. So it was 1999. It's not that old. No, 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 no. Early metal, sort of the mid, <laughs> yeah. mid-90s, I think, yeah. But um, – and now I think I, I don't know what I averaged the last year, but call it 289, and I was probably 130th. Um, and I think two things happened. Number one, obviously the equipment got better and everything else, but you have everybody looks like Jeff Ogilvy now. I mean, they're 6'2, 6'3. They're, they're athletes. And, um, you know, the new player on the PGA Tour is a, is a true, um, you know, he's a bruiser. And um, they're just physically. They're physically more gifted. So I think that's number one. And number two is, you know, I, I'll know, one of the on, – on Shaq's site, one of the things that I've, I think the most influential thing in golf, and not so much the Metal Woods and Ball, which Clates will probably disagree on me with, but in 1978, he ran a, in a deal that showed the fastest greens in the, in the United States. And I think Merriam was the fastest at 8.2 on the stemp. Augusta was 7.9 or 8, and um, what was the other one that was real fast? Check. I think that one was, not, was, was, that, was 9.9. Was that the quickest, Jeff? I'm pulling it up at the moment, actually. Uh, Cy- Cypress Point, 7 feet 8 inches was the highest. Uh, actually, Marion was 6'4", 6 feet wow. 4 inches. Wow. In 1978? Uh, let's see, Steve Marion, 7'7". It was uh yeah Jerry Tardy wrote it in a uh, golf digest column. Okay, so I and, gave him. Uh, but you think about that. At, Oakland Hills was eight five. That was eight, that wow. was the fastest. Oh, Oakmont okay, so, nine eight, where you just were. Yeah. So I you look at those. You look at those things and what that's meant to pin placements. What pin placements they've lost. Um, firmness of greens. The cost of maintaining. I mean, I think that that. Pace of play. I think John Deere has affected the game more than TaylorMade and Titleist. Um, That's controversial, but uh, 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 I don't know. well, they're, they're probably all contributors, aren't they, Clates? But are, but aren't the speeds a, re- a response to what Titleist and TaylorMade are doing? In part, don't we keep chasing the speed to as a defense? Because the yeah, I think so. But I just think in, in 1978, you didn't have the technology to do that. Um, mm. You know, I think that. Not granted. So that's a more you're recent. Right. Thing. You're right, but um, that that's been a that's been a huge factor. You know the 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 the, um, the speeds of the greens, the speeds of the fairways, and um, you know I love Pinehurst this year with the single line irrigation. I just thought that played wonderfully. Now a lot of people didn't like the look. I thought I thought it was fantastic. I played my practice round with with Jeff Ogilvy there, and we just we just loved it. Um, but yeah, I, look. I think now that I'm now that I'm out of the now that I'm out of the business, I you know, I think the USGA and the U, and the RNA whiffed the ball. Um, the you know, I think that that's I think that's fair. I think that this is this is historic. We've gotten an admission from him. I love this. You are recording this, right, Rod? Yeah, well, I did press record <laughs> this time. Yes, thank you. Good. And you Please know, I continue. Think the, I, I think I think the only way to solve it is you just you, you have a minimum amount of spin. I think that's the way you got to do it. I was saying, going to say, Joe, because of course the problem is, and I think everybody accepts, even those who don't admit it publicly, everybody accepts that you know the RNA and the USGA, the horses escape the barn as far as the ball goes. But the question really becomes pragmatically, what can you do about it? We'd all love, well, a lot of us in that camp would love to see a ball roll back. It's just not feasible, is it, with the the commercial interests involved? It's never going to happen. It's difficult. Um... It's difficult. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think that from a ball standpoint, 
I mean, look, everybody balls are sort of perishable. I mean, people lose them. They, they wear out the, you know, yada, yada. I mean, that's the easiest thing to do. Um, and these companies aren't, aren't exactly printing money anyway. And I think what you find is spin creates, um, well, the balls do go longer for the average player. The average player, the the ball has not helped at all. I don't think. No, not at all. No, 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 Well, that was. Yeah. I mean, so the ball doesn't spin spin as much. So they're less accurate. They might be a little further increment. They might hit a little bit further incrementally, but you know, they're hitting it all over the place. Um, so yeah, I mean, the ball's the easiest thing to do. Joe, Joe, have you 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 think about things from a business perspective and also the the from the games perspective? Have you? I'm sure you've thought through scenarios uh, on this and ways that it could be made to work to satisfy the business side as well as the the soul of the game side. Uh, is that correct? Have you? I mean, I'm sure you've standing on a tee waiting uh, on the PGA Tour. You probably kicked that around and. Is there any any, any uh, way to make it happen? Oh, I think there I think there is, but look, I mean, golf at the end of the day, and I and I admit I do not know what equipment companies look like, like in Australia or Asia or Japan or those places. But at least in the United States, you're going to see in the next three to four years, just like every other sport in the United States, there's three players in every sport, right? I mean, in football, you have Under Armour, Adidas, and Nike. Um, basketball, you have the same thing. So you, you really don't have these five, six, ten equipment companies playing in the same sport. And I think that's what you're going to have with golf. And once you have that, it's going to be easier, I think, because you're going to have the dominating players. Now, that's not going to be very good for the PGA Tour Pro. Um, but I think that um, I think it gets easier in that scenario. Um and I, you know, I could be wrong on that, but my my gut tells me that's going to happen. Isn't the key to it, Joe? How do you convince the manufacturers that it's in their interests to stop this notion that the only way to sell golf equipment is distance? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, because that's a great question. Fundamentally, that's what's happened. The, the the equipment manufacturers, because a little bit like tabloid papers, once you figure out what sells you keep flogging it because it keeps selling. And they've discovered that distance is what sells, both in balls but particularly in drivers. And I, we had Richard Gillis on the show, didn't we, Shaq? And he talked about, on his blog, someone from TaylorMade or Callaway told him that, you know, the only yeah. conversation to have in a marketing point of view as an equipment is about distance. And if you own that conversation, yep. you make sales. So how do we stop... If we could stop that being the only conversation, then we're a step further along the line, are we not? Yeah, but you're not going to stop that coming. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the, the, what the USGA has done, and this is, this is an interesting point that um, Jeff and I have discussed a little bit, is that th- we're the first generation of golfers that, in theory, will not have better equipment 20 years from now than they have right now. Right? I mean, this is the first generation of golfers where they've limited the coefficient of restitution. They, they've limited the spring-like effect of the drivers. They've limited the aerodynamics of how fast. Of, so unless physics, the laws of physics change between now and 20 years from now, they're not going to be able to innovate. I mean, they can, right now they're innovating with paint and they're innovating with movable weights, which, you know, drivers, I, in my opinion, really stopped getting better probably in 2009 or 10 
Um, and the balls, they're just screwing around with the dimples with the aerodynamics now. They're not necessarily making it longer. So for, from an equipment standpoint, it's going to be interesting to see what they do because they can't do much. Um, and I think the public, if you read the annual reports of these golf equipment companies, at least in the States, I mean, they're getting decimated because companies like TaylorMade went to a four-month sales cycle. And while they 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 kind of brought in demand, or they brought in, uh, yeah, they brought in demand and kind of created artificial demand in the out years, they're getting killed now. So it'll be interesting. So isn't that happens. an argument then for bifurcation? You guys play by one set of rules and then let, let uh, everybody else do whatever they want. And then if people, good amateur golfers, want to play by the, uh, the pro sets of rules and with that equipment, they can. Isn't that why is that that one seems to be problematic for the companies too is that just because they're so addicted to selling people things based on what tour players use yeah i mean we're the marketing and and, and really history has shown what what works in marketing from a golf equipment company is doesn't necessarily matter who plays what it matters how many guys play what mm, so yeah. titleist is the number one in ball in golf taylor made the number one driver in golf the incremental sales of those two statements is probably two hundred million worldwide. So, when you're dealing with the kind of margins that are in, you know, club heads and, and balls, that's that's significant. The other point, um, of course, Joe and Jeff, and I've often thought about this: How would you implement a bifurcated set of rules unless the PGA Tour or the professional tours agreed to play by some separate set of rules brought in by the amateur governing bodies? Um, I can't see how it's feasible. Well, I'd love to see it, but it's a problem. How, how would you do it, Clates? Well, you do it the same way we did it in 1982 when we went from the small ball to the big ball. So the tours went to the big ball in Europe in the late 70s and Australia in the, a few years later. And then the, the, the elite amateurs went to it a little later. The Golf Association mandated the big ball for the Australian amateur. And while still the club player was playing with the small ball until 83 or 4, and then it all just merged in together again. And, the, and I didn't hear, ever hear one club player in Australia complain about losing 25 yards in distance because, in, because they didn't, mainly. And the big ball was better to chip with and putt with. And No manufacturer told them that necessarily either. Would that still work in today's world, knowing the two of the way you do, Joe? Can you see something like that rolling in as seamlessly as what Clates has just laid out for when the, the change came to the big ball? Um, well, it would take... It would take guys that really understand golf to be the leaders, which. Um, Ooh, we're on the verge of something <laughs> here, aren't we? I can, I can feel it. Yeah. Um, you can't be fined for what you say on the show now. <laughs> you know, it's certainly not going to happen um, with the current commissioner. Um, but, you know, I, I think that I think people and rules officials. You know, rules officials kind of get it now, and some of the players are starting to get it. Um, but it's it, it is going it is going to be difficult. I do think that I do think that you are uh, you might see a day, and I don't know when it is, but I know the USGA is very very serious about the ball, um, and they've got enough firepower now that they're going to be able to, you know, they're able to withstand a lawsuit. Um, Can the game cope with that? You can imagine the fractures in the game the day that announcement comes. We saw just with the anchored putting the response from manufacturers, from PGA Tour players, from the PGA Tour themselves, 
which is an unusual sort of response to begin with, brilliantly handled by Fincham in the end. But, um, but I mean, don't the tour just need to get Jack Nicholas and a bunch of articulate, thoughtful players to stand up and make the case? I mean, if, I was discussing with someone the other day, if golf was a democratic game and, and it was run by political parties, not that you want to run by political parties, but if there was a... a the USGA and the RNA had to stand for election against a party led by Jack Nicholson, Tom Weisskopf and Joe Ogilvie and Jeff Ogilvie and Jeff Shackelford who were arguing their point of the case. But they would win an election easily if the golfers voted. The RNA and the USGA would be gone in a week because great players can make a thoughtful, intelligent argument about why it would be better to roll the ball back and make the game quicker and stop this obsession with long courses and speed of greens and... Wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, I mean, if you had, I've always thought it'd be interesting if if I was going to make a you know call it a a huge statement for golf, um, and I'd start with the PGA Tour players. I would get Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, um, Gary Player, and a few other guys in the room. I mean, guys that have some major gravitas, and I'll say, guys, this is what we want to do. I want you to sell it. You're the game's elders. Everybody in this room respects the hell to you. We, you know, they think the world you created this tour. You, um, you know, uh, you're the most influential guys in golf. Sell it because they're going to do a better job than anybody. I mean, and I think that it takes that kind of gravitas to do it. And I think it takes the gravitas of doing it at a PGA Tour player meeting. Who do they need to sell it to, Joe? To the manufacturers or the golfing public? Look, I think if the golfers, um, because you know you're going to get, and, and again, I think it's going, I think it's a couple years away when you finally get to a few manufacturers. Um, there's enough, there's enough money in the game for three to four manufacturers, and if you, and if you went down from a technological level, um, they could, they could all make their, they could all make their numbers, and it'd be fine. Um, but right now with 10 vying for, vying for product, it becomes more difficult. But I think, I, I think that the USGA is going to push it. Um, and if I was going to push it, I would push it with the game's elders. Yeah, except don't you have the problem, though, that, that – I, I mean, I always hear that. People say, oh, well – uh, they're just bitter about uh, the way how far these guys hit it, or uh, they just sound like old uh, coots saying uh, it was better in my day. I mean, that, that's the fan reaction that I hear a lot, which is frustrating. Well, I think that's true, but but remember, um, they can sell it in a way that every golfer with a huge ego, which is what you know, you you have to have a big ego when you're on the PGA Tour. Just, to, I mean, the fact that you're one of the best players in the world. You can't get there if you have a fragile ego or if you have an ego that you just don't believe in yourself. So every one of those guys in that room will believe that they're a great player. And if Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer and the, and the greats of the game say, look, if we roll back the ball or, let, or put some guardrails on the ball, the best players are going to be better. That's a very compelling argument if I'm an Adam Scott or a Tiger Woods or a you know, one of those guys. Um, because Adam Scott's going to believe that he can beat Joe Ogilvy, you know, 10 days out of 10. 
And then Adam Scott's got to believe that he can beat Tiger Woods right now 10 days out of 10. And if he's going to have equipment that's going to further separate, that's a good thing for the best players in the world. And the best players in the world are going to drive it, just like Arnold and Jack is going to make the comment. Which has always been one who said he'd be comfortable with a ball and equipment rollback, hasn't he? Because he's always felt that it would actually favor him um, because it, it makes that gap bigger, uh, as you say. Let, let's move on to the importance of that then, Joe. What we talk about it all the time here, but what is the importance of professional golf in the whole state of the game uh, debate? The, the, the courses the tour plays on, the distances the tour players hit it, all of those other things. How important is professional golf to golf more broadly, do you think? Well, I can only speak from a, from a US-centric view, but, um, you know, I think that um, the game is... I think people like seeing guys at the end of the game shake each other's hand. I think that I think the 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 look of golf is is kind of is nice. People understand that it's a gentleman's game. People understand that these guys are a little bit different, um, and the game is different. They're they're um, they're eating what they kill. They don't have guaranteed contracts. They have um, so that's I think that's one thing that's important. I think with the Unfortunately, when and, you know Jeff and and Clates have talked about it, about the speed of the greens, they see people want to augustify their courses, and that's a number one. It's impossible, um, and number two, it does create you know difficult playing conditions for the average spec, you know for the average player. Um, I think that's kind of hurt the game. I love the, what the USGA is doing with their water conservation movement. Um, I love the the fact that they they're saying, look, brown is beautiful, but if if you do it just for just one tournament, well, the Open Championship does it as well. They just let Mother Nature take control, which is the best way to play golf. But if you do it for one tournament only, it's a problem. But if if the PGA Tour would take that by the reins and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make this a uh, a platform. I think it becomes real important, and it sends a message across the country, especially to the South um, and California that's experiencing a drought, that you can you need to change grasses, you need to play whatever grasses are, are drought tolerant, and, you need, and brown is an okay color for golf. I think it's a beautiful contrast, personally. As a look, as a golfer, I'd far prefer to watch the Open Championship than Congress. In fact, it was startling to see Pinehurst to Congressional this year. I remember watching the two sort of back to back and thinking, "Wow, are they the same game?" If you weren't a, if you weren't a golfer, you wouldn't necessarily believe they were the same game, would you? Um, those uh, those two courses, Clates. What's your take on that? The importance of professional golf. We probably touched on this before, but you know, I wonder about how influential tournament golf and professional golf really is and do we have are we breeding a generation of golfers now like those at the web.com tour event who are playing in the field who've not seen or hit a person and driver before where the things we're talking about don't make sense to them because the golf they've grown up with is what we see on tv in this day and age yeah so long ago now um was it frank hannigan who said if the pref- if the pga tour disappeared tomorrow there's still be 30 million golfers playing golf this time next year <laughs> no, i think that's yeah, you know, in many ways, that's probably right. Golf's a great game, and if if the if the if there was no professional golf, the game would still do pretty well, I think. Having said that, I mean, my attraction to golf when I started playing was that. Well, the first thing I did was go and buy a golf magazine and read about Bruce Devlin winning the Elkan at Port Marnock, and then go down to Kingston Heath and watch Gary Player play. You know, all, all I wanted to do was watch 
pros play golf. I love watching golf played really well. So, so for me, you know, lots of people who play golf don't particularly care about the game that much. They play it, and, that, and then they're not that interested in the tour, and they're not that interested in watching high-class golf. But for me, the, the, the greatest fun of, in golf almost is watching really good players play the game and watching really good players on interesting courses. So that, that's the, the importance of the tour is being able to watch the game played beautifully. Same with tennis, really. I mean, who wants to watch a bunch of hackers play tennis? But watch Roger Federer play tennis or Tiger Woods play golf. It's beautiful. So, so for people who are interested enough in the game to watch it, that's the great thing about the tour is seeing the game played properly. It's kind of like bringing the, – the thing about the courses is what intrigues me, and Joe, I'd like to get your thoughts on this because you've spoken about courses on the tour. In fact, I think you said at one point that the tour should be seeking out courses by Corin Crenshaw and Clayton Ogilvy and these sorts of you – know, and Doak and those sorts of things to see the best play on that that type of golf. When you, when you bring together the, the, the very best instrument and the very best musicians, um, it's, it can be a far more enjoyable or a, far, a special spectator experience, can't it? Watching Tiger Woods at Kingston Heath in 09 was just staggering. I know you were probably there, Clates. I watched it on TV, but yeah, it was it, great. It was a yeah. beautiful thing to watch. Sorry, Joe. There was a question in there about oh, oh, oh sorry about well, seeing more of that, the importance of that, perhaps, or the, the effect that that could have. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, the the most interesting conversation in, in on the PGA Tour happens on the tenth green or tenth tee box every year at Riviera, and you know, between you and your caddy, and you're like, okay, do I hit a five iron or four iron and lay up on the far left-hand side, just short of the, of the kind of the mid, mid bunker, over the cross bunker, over the mid bunker? Or do I hit three wood just over if I can cross the mid bunker and just short of the green? Or do I hit driver and hopefully get it on the upslope of the right bunker, which I may not be able to stop short of the, of the mid bunker on the green? Or do I hit it long left? And hopefully have it. I mean, it's just, it's a mind, it's mind-numbing how how difficult that short hole is and how great it is. Um, I mean, Jeff's there every year. And I think that that's the valuable, valuable thing about playing great, wonderfully designed golf courses. Um, it just puts thoughts in a player's head. It's good for TV because it gets people, you know, with the boom mics and everything, spectators and people in the television audience can pick it up they're normally beautiful golf courses because they have they have great color contrast. They have the wispy grass. They have um, kind of the bumpiness. It's not all flat, not all manicured. Um, I just think it's the best form of golf, not only to watch but to play. And um, players are jazzed up about it. You don't. You've ne- I've never heard a player complain about Riviera, except when they added two hundred yards without anyone knowing it. But but would you say, Joe, there's been a change in the last uh, five to somewhere between five and ten years where players are more, uh, I would say probably five years, more open to uh, holes that are a little bit different or setups that are a little bit more um, risk-reward driven? It seems like the tour used to be very, uh, or at least the average tour player, used to be really dead set against anything that was not seen as fair and uh, upholding the integrity of the event, and it seems like there's been a little bit more openness to more entertainment value being part of the presentation. 
Well, I would agree with that, and I think that that's a direct result of, of Mike Davis in the last five years, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he's changed the whole. Number one, when he went to graduated rough in 2008 um, at Torrey Pines, I think that changed the whole conversation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that was a big, big deal. Uh, and he also took the, what was it, the 15th hole? 14, yeah. 14th hole and made it drivable. I mean, there's a hole that, I mean, the PGA Tour would have never contemplated. And guys, yeah. you know, I've talked to rules officials, and they still have a hard time they do. turning yeah. par fours that aren't drivable into drivable par fours. Now, I don't, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, and I'm not sure how I, I, I still like the tent at Riviera, a designed drivable par four yeah. better than anything. But I think it's a definite – when you change the – the USGA is always trying to keep us off balance. And I think that's an interesting way to set up a golf course. You know, I, we, have a game, we have a game at Austin Golf Club where we play with some guys where we, we play like backgammon. And if you win the hole, you have the cube. And, and handicaps have if you play the front two tees. And you have full handicaps if you play the back two tees. So we end up playing the red tees – you know, maybe hmm. four, four to seven times around sometimes. And I think it's fun. I mean, it's, it's not how Corbin Crenshaw designed that golf course for the, for the better players, but it's, it's a fun way to play it, and it's a different way to play it. But the, the thing you always hear from players is that, that, that it's gimmicky. And, you know, I was mentioning to one official, uh, a club has a, uh, an event where they play the front nine as easy as possible and the back nine as hard as possible. And uh, doing stuff like that, and I and I I don't like it when Mike Davis has days that are a little bit kind of meant to be scoring day versus hard day. I don't I don't care for that kind of setup. On the other hand, the, in the U.S. Open, you want some uh, element of integrity maintained. But on the tour, it just seems like there's still a resistance to doing the most you possibly can do to make it entertaining. Um, and I and I don't know where that. I'm curious. I guess what I'm getting at is where does that mentality come from? Is it just because there's so many people and this is their livelihood, and they don't like the idea of gimmicks somehow possibly uh, interfering with that? Yeah, I think that is, and it it, it comes from um, I don't know who was on the policy board maybe 20, 25 years ago when Slugger White and, and Mark Russell first got their. You know, they've been the main tournament directors for about 20 years now, and they influenced that, the the policy board saying that, you know, we want to make this, we want to make it hard, we want to make it, you know, so the best players kind of rise up. And and that's Slugger and Mark's general philosophy. Now, they've, as Mike Davis has changed a little bit, they've they've changed, they've changed a bit. They have. Um, And... You know, I think that they're seeing a little bit more. You're seeing a little bit more variety to your to your point. Um, and look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, a lot of these courses have had abundance of water, and they've had abundance of things. And in the Northeast, you're always going to have water. But you know, other places, California, Texas, Arizona, we're not going to be able to do things that we used to be able to do. Um, and so things are just going to change from a setup standpoint out of necessity. Mm. Isn't part of the the problem that we're sort of talking about here, or the issue, which I mean, almost the homogenisation of the tour as it's sort of happened over the last one? Isn't that part of the problem 
having the lunatics in charge of the asylum, so to speak, Joe, when when the players essentially sort of own and technically run the tour. I know that there's, you know, it's not quite that simple, but isn't that part of the problem when they're technically the boss and they're telling the commissioner this is how we want golf to be because it suits the way we play? Well... <laughs> Getting interesting you've now, never, isn't it? Yeah. Just, <laughs> you've never been in a board meeting with Tim Fincham. Um, right. It's it's uh, you know t- I think that um, it's it's fine to think that the players kind of run things and everything else, and the tour takes notes on what the players think. But I don't I don't think necessarily that they. Um, you know, they have a certain way that they do things and, you know, it's, they always, you know, it's worked out. Um, and they get the courses in incredibly good shape and everything else. But I think that, uh, you know, it's run. The interesting thing about the tour is you've got a hundred and, I don't know, 190 guys that are giving their opinion and, and there's about 150 different opinions. So that's a good thing if you're running it. Those players don't speak from one voice. In that scenario, it's much easier for somebody like Fincham to divide and conquer, though, isn't it, and get his own way, Joe? Perhaps he's a brilliant politician in that way, isn't he, Fincham? He's he's brilliant. Yeah, he's a great he's a great tactician. What, what was your take on just out of interest on the way he handled the anchored putter debate? It was staggering when he came out and made that announcement that the tour would not wasn't supporting it as a as a concept. Um, in the end, when you look back, he handled it again brilliantly, didn't he? That was a fabulous ploy. Yeah, I, and I think that that deal was he always knew that he was going to support the USGA, but he had to say, you know what, I support my troops too. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I look, I think that anchored putting is is not that great. Um, I was more of a bifurcation deal. I mean, I thought that once you turn 50 – or 55, or whatever you want to say, um, why not let a guy anchor? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. It's one of the smaller problems in the game, isn't it, really? Yeah. What's that? It's one of the smaller problems in the Of all the issues that face golf, anchored putting is not near the top of the list, I don't think. Yeah, I didn't think it was that big a deal because, you know, quite frankly, what an anchor putter does is an anchor putter doesn't help a great player. Um, I think it helps a, a poor putter become pretty you know, pretty decent, but it doesn't, if I put an anchor putter in Brad Faxon's hands, I guarantee he's going to be a worse putter a year from now. Um, so I always thought it was supposed to be, I I always thought an age thing would be a little bit better. Um, but do you think there's a possibility that the USGA and the RNA using that as a test case to perhaps get a feel for how things might play out if they do some of the things we discussed earlier with, the ball rollback, equipment rollbacks, and perhaps bifurcation. Is that that part of why they chose anchored putting, which we all agree is not that big a deal. There are other bigger deals, but is that the test case, do you think, perhaps? Oh, I think I think so. I think that what, what came out of the anchored putting debate was the USGA and the RNA realized that they will never make another rule um, independently again. Now, that's probably a pretty strong statement. But I really think that they kind of realized, oh, dear, um, we're going to have to at least let the PGA Tour and the, and the European PGA Tour in on this. 
um, and the worldwide golf tours um, before we do anything again. And that's, you know, that's difficult, right? I mean, that's just going to, that's going to make it more difficult. But I think that that's what they realized. We're in an area which is interesting, Joe, because on more than one occasion, you've been touted as a potential future commissioner of the tour, and you have said that it's a role you would be interested uh, in taking up, though you accept that you couldn't just walk in there tomorrow. It's a $2 billion organisation. You don't just walk off the 18th green into the office and start running the tour. Um, they what, could. Well, event, well, exactly, eventually. Is that something that you still uh, would pay? It seems you have the support of a lot of players, which would be important at some point. Um, and what sorts of things might you think about doing were you to ever get there and become the commissioner? Well, I think that, um, well, number one, Jay Monahan is going to be the next commissioner. But number two, I think it's incredibly important, and this is you know going to be controversial, but golf has to start, and I'm, and I'm talking about American golf, and I realize that's, it's a very international job right now. But golf as a whole has to start speaking with one voice because currently you have three different voices, the PGA Tour, the PGA of America, and the um, USGA speaking three different, almost three different languages for the same sport. And not only is it massively inefficient, it's also somewhat confusing um, for the average guy. And you've got... You know, these these three organizations, and add the Masters in there, you've got four organizations that have tremendous amounts of money that if if taking if they, they were efficient in the way they spin it from a messaging standpoint, um, it'd be a lot better for the game. So that's number one. I don't know how you bridge all that, but that's the that's I think that's job number one for the for the new commissioner. Unless you're talking from a business side, and then you've got to fix PGATour.com, which is, if you've been on it, is just completely <laughs> horrific. Do not get me started, please. What's, what's the next thing, though? What are some of, those, some of the big issues? Because PGA Tour is a very well, powerful organization, more powerful than it's ever been in history. Yeah, you know, we've got, I think, I think at the end of the day, you have, I think everyone in the top 30 on the world are now members of the PGA Tour. Well, golf, there's no doubt about it. It's going to be interesting. I think they have to figure out um, and this, I've been reading about the Brazil golf course. God bless Gil Hans for having to put up with this. But, um, you know, golf's going to be more and more. It's already global with the Olympics. I think it's going to take it to a different, um, you know, a, a different level. And that's going to change the schedule for golf. Um, you know, the PGA Championship is probably going to be moving to the first major as opposed to the last major. Um, at least every other every four years, um, and who knows that might be a permanent stop. So the golf schedule is going to change so before the Masters. Is you saying? Yeah, in, in the Olympic years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, in the, in the Olympic years, July. Okay, I must have missed that. It might be after the Masters, but it might be before at Royal they Melbourne. Wouldn't that be good? Anyway, sorry. No, <laughs> you yeah. were saying. Yeah. Well, and you, you know, look, you never know. I mean, the Masters, you know, it may go, you know, the PGA Championship. And I've always, I've, I've stated this in, in the, <laughs> makes her skin crawl. I'm like, look, if you look out 50 years from now, I think it's very hard to imagine that three out of the four majors are going to be U.S.-based majors. Um, and I don't think the Masters will go anywhere, and I don't think the U.S. Open will go anywhere. So the PGA might be the weak leg of that. If it becomes an international competition, I think it gets more, interesting certainly maybe every four years with the olympics 
but um, you know, I think I think you have to, you know, from a scheduling standpoint, eventually you're going to have, um, you know, the PGA Tour started to do this with the China Tour and or the China PGA Tour and the Latin American and the Canadian Tour, but eventually, um, you know, I think what you what you'd like to do is if it's if it's the Asian Tour, including Australia, you want to try to make those just as good as the PGA Tour. Um, there's certainly I don't know three billion people in that area, so you certainly have the you certainly have the scale for it to be competition wise every bit as as the US PGA Tour. And if you can kind of control that, and international marketing and international distribution is, I mean that's where that's where the biggest opportunity is. But Joe, everything we're seeing right now points to oversaturation of the product. Uh, I mean, the players are just absolutely, you, you hear it in their comments and talking right now in the playoffs, they're burned out. Uh, the announcers sound <laughs> burned out. It's, it, how, how can this continue with, with it being a year-round sport without some downtime? Every other sport goes away. And golf is just nonstop, and and I think you're you're starting to see players just realize they they have no life. Their 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 whole life is playing every week, and they made all this money. And they're the top guys. I mean, Rory is playing this week because he gets to go to the Broncos game on Sunday. That is not a ringing endorsement of the playoffs. I'm sorry. All right, the the PGA Tour guys that aren't in the top fifty in the world say, "Look, there's two tours right now. Anyway, you've got the Platinum PGA Tour and you've got the regular PGA Tour. And the Platinum PGA Tour is the WGCs, the majors, the FedEx Cup. Um, if you're in, you know, in the top thirty, um, and then various other tournaments. So you've got." You know, no one from the PGA Tour would admit it, but you already have a world tour, and that's where you're going. Um, and then you're gonna have you're gonna have enough good players going forward that um, you're gonna have great fields, pretty deep fields, and you can have you can have an Asian tour, a PGA tour, and the European tour will probably meld into the meld into. Joe? Ah, seems like we might have lost Joe there. J- Joe? No, we seem to have lost Joe. Look, while we get uh, while we get Joe back on the line, I'm going to muck around in the background here. Shaq, the, uh, the nice people at Audible have asked us to uh, have a chat about one of their books. I know you're an Audible subscriber. This would seem a, a perfect opportunity for you to talk us through what you've been listening to lately. I think you mentioned that you were listening to something at the open that we didn't get a chance to talk about on that episode. Yeah, I've been. Uh, it's a long book now. It's forty-three hours. There's no chance I'm ever going to get through it all. But I am loving this. Uh, it's a it's a book on the Beatles called Tune In. Uh, if you've seen the actual hard copy, it's really a big doorstop. It is very thick. And uh, but I uh, I started listening to it before I went to Liverpool for the Open Championship and got some great Beatles uh, anecdotes out of it that I wrote about actually over there and how the golf course they used to cross and. Uh, and how it was a metaphor and all this uh, other fun stuff. But um, no, the book that uh, caught my attention actually on which I did not know was on Audible. Uh, and by the way, that Beatles book is called Tune In, and that's the first of three. By the way, uh, before I forget, uh, which I can't imagine they're going to end up being 120 hours talking about the Beatles. But 43. Um, well, yeah, yeah. That's a lot, that's a lot of uh, commuting. That's, yeah, that's a lot of commuting. Yeah. Um, 
But on the golf side, I uh, I did not know that on Audible, it's only about six hours, eh, maybe seven hours long, is uh, Brad Klein's Wide Open Fairways, which was a uh, an updated version of his original book, which uh, a lot of us loved, and uh, Rough Meditations. And uh, he took out a bunch of things, I believe, from that, and this is mostly new stuff with some of the better uh, old pieces. And uh, the reader is not, uh, shall we say... Um, you know, one of the greatest reads, like that Beatle book I'm listening to right now, the reader is just just awesome, and uh, it makes a difference. But if you were wanting to read Brad's book in the car or, uh, uh, you know, when you're out walking or whatever and you just want to hear some great stuff about golf architecture and, and all that, and Brad's been on the show, it's uh, highly recommended. So it's it's Wide Open Fairways and uh, uh, by Brad Klein and uh, read by Timothy Bader. Yeah, Brad was—he uh, was terrific when we had him on the show, and that book is uh, is a fabulous, a fabulous read. Now, for the listeners out there who haven't read Brad's book and wouldn't mind having a listen to it, if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can sign up for a free trial. You get a free one free audio book uh, as part of the trial. All you need to do go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash s o g. That's s for state, o for of. G for game, audiblepodcast.com forward slash SOG, and you can download one free audiobook as part of a trial. You can pick Brad's book or indeed any one of a number of other fabulous golf books or indeed any one of a number of other books from all sorts of different genres. So that's audiblepodcast.com forward slash S for state, O for of, G for game. And I think we might have Joe back on the line. Yes, we do. Joe, so what we were talking about was, and you were quite rightly saying that you could have deep fields all over the world every week, which is fantastic. But does that necessarily mean that there is the consumer demand or appetite for that much golf? I think that's the point Jeff was sort of making. We've got lots of great golf as it is, but even great golf you can have too much of. Is that not true? Well, I, I, look, I think, that that's a, I think that's a fair point. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, you're going to have your, let's call it your, you probably have room for 16 to 20 truly great events worldwide, right? I mean, that gives the guys 32 weeks off if it's 20 and, you know, any good working person can, can take 32 weeks off a year. Um, I don't think that's too much to ask. But and then you and then you have you know then you have your filler events but 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 you know look when I first got on tour there were I don't know thirty guys internationally they're international members of the PGA Tour now there's eighty eight to ninety um, I don't think from an elite level you're just you're just starting to get the Asians to really be involved in in golf um, from an elite level I mean it's been happening for you know, call it 10 years, but, um, and you had Jumbo Ozaki and you had the Ozaki brothers, but you, you, you haven't had to the extent that we have, we have now. And 10 years from now, it's going to be, you know, I think there's going to be 150 guys that are truly elite from, or not elite, but truly great players from Asia. Um, so you're going to have plenty of players that are, that are good enough that can support these events. Now, I don't know what television ratings will be like, but I think that if you create local stars, that will only help in packages and to sell golf worldwide. People want to see local stars. I mean, people are interested in who the best player in Australia is if, they, if they're not already a, a member of our tour. 
Um, At the moment, that's the thing, isn't it? That there's something nice about having a central place where everybody wants to get to. And you talk to any player on the European tour, well, not any, but most on the European tour, all those on the Web.com tour, all the guys playing in Asia, what they all are aiming for is to get to the PGA Tour because that's where the best play. Is there a danger of diluting that, or does the PGA Tour becoming a global thing? It's still where they want to get to. They just play everywhere, as well as the United States. Well, I think there's some dilution, but. I think long-term it's better for everybody because what you're going to have is, you know, the United States is the best tour in the world because it's by far the easiest to travel out of. I mean, as golf is, and the European tours expanded globally, I mean, you have guys flying 18 hours between tournaments, um, and money, that's direct. The money helps in America too, Joe. I mean, the money in golf. Well, the, the, the money helps, but for the elite player, I mean, they're getting paid, you know, they're getting paid enough that it doesn't, that it doesn't, doesn't move the needle for them. They want to play because you have best conditions and you have um, fairly ease of travel. And you can just, you know, United States, Miami to Seattle is only a five and a half hour flight. Uh, and that's about as far as you can go. On your own plane, that's not too bad to, uh, to indulge in. <laughs> well, not everybody's flying no, that, but I think that, I think what ha- what will happen is you're just going to see, you're going to see better and better play. Um, China hasn't even started yet, and China is going to produce, you know, a hundred guys. Well, Norman's in charge now, so of the Olympic team, so they're they're well on the way. Uh, yeah. In that sense, at at some stage, Joe, or at any stage, and we've always been, I think, of the belief on this show that this has nothing to do with it. But do any of the top players, given that money is no longer an issue, can? playing the world's better golf courses or more interesting golf courses have any influence on where these guys will choose to play. We in Australia, the last few years in particular, have really suffered. Uh, it cost us a bundle to bring out one or two world-class players each year. That didn't used to be the case many years ago. Is there any appeal in playing somewhere like Royal Melbourne for the top players, given that money's no longer an issue, and does that help perhaps Royal Melbourne become part of the world schedule as a broad concept? <sighs> You know, I would like to say that there there is, but I mean it's it's difficult. I mean, I think that that's why that's why an Asian tour is so is a strong Asian tour is so important because what you can do as soon as you start to have the development of an Asian tour, you start to have develop of TV packages, and you can get you know purses get raised, um, and you can start to have things that um, kind of offset and. If, as tournaments grow over there, um, world ranking points grow over there, and prestige grows over there, you're gonna guys are gonna go where the prestige is, and where all the best players are gonna be playing. Um, and I think right now, unfortunately, guys don't care as much about the great courses as they used to. That's probably that might be unfair, but. Um, as to Jeff's point, right now you got a long season, and you got a season that um, isn't as well. You know, I just don't think the season's as well thought out, or it flows as well as it will, you know, in 15, 20 years from now. Um, and it's going to take time. I mean, you can't just snap a finger and say this is going to happen. It's got to build. You mentioned there when we were talking about the day you become commissioner, which I think we're all looking forward to now. It'd be very nice for State of the Game to have a direct line to the commissioner uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. when that day 
when that day comes. But you said there that, you know, you talked about the PGA and looking 50 years ahead. How many people in golf, in administration, either the tour or mm. the RNA, how many people are in fact looking 50 years ahead? Is that a statement you hear often when you talk to people about the game and where it's going? No, I mean, I don't think you have many people, but many people, period, don't look 50 years ahead. Yeah. I mean, they don't look 50 years ahead in their investment. They don't, they don't, they don't think that in those terms. Very few, I mean, you know, and it's, it's difficult to think 50 years ahead because you just don't know what's going to happen. But I think that I always look at things, if, if things are the way they are, and say, okay, does that make logical sense 50 years from now? You know, 50 years from now, it makes logical sense that the U.S. Open is still going to be a major. It makes sense the Open Championship is still going to be a major. It makes sense that the Masters is still going to be a major. You know, and then I get, okay, if there's going to be four majors, does it make sense that the PGA Championship is going to be a major? I don't know. Um, I think it'd be naive to think that Asia or that part of the world, as it grows and as, as golf flourishes, hopefully, that they won't have some type of major tournament. Um, and that's where it could go, you know, who knows? You wouldn't, like to be, a, you wouldn't like to be in charge of the PGA, would you, Joe, having to try and make those decisions? That's going to be a tough sell for whoever at the PGA takes the brave decision to say we are, I know they've floated the idea, but to say we're actually going international now, the resistance will be pretty strong, won't it? Like, well, it already failed the first time because we now know that 2020 is out, uh, and that was the first yeah. time they were considering it, so... I mean, they, they, look, they, they, have a, they have a very difficult thing. I mean, in a sense that they're two cash cows. The Ryder Cup, you know, 23 out of 24 guys on the Ryder, well, maybe 22 out of 24 guys on the Ryder Cup team are going to be PGA Tour members. Six of the team, PGA, six of the Ryder Cup team, you live in Florida. Yeah, the team that's going to play in three weeks' time. Six of them from Europe live mm. in Florida. Yeah, and and you know they're 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 all members of the PGA Tour. So when you have twenty two out of twenty four in the PGA Tour, and and you're only basically from an economic standpoint, you're giving the PGA Tour what twenty percent of the of the revenue um, of just the U.S. TV rights. You know that's that's probably going to change. Um, There's legitimate conversations to be had about that, aren't there, Joe? Yeah, I mean, you know, you could say you're playing for your country and all that stuff, and, and you know, writers will bash the players, but the players aren't getting paid necessarily. Someone's making money on all these championships. And so let's see how you're spending that money. But if you're not spending that money, you know, um, properly, it's like anything else. I mean, things will change. Um, but the, the guy, Pete Bavaka, he's got a tough job. Um, he's got a great job, but he's got a tough job. But it could be great. I mean, it, 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 PGA of America is the backbone of, of, of golf, right? I mean, they're teaching everybody how to play the game. Um, you know, my club pro had probably the most influence over my golf than anybody. So, I mean, it's a huge, huge value. But I'm not sure they the club pro deserves a little bit more support than they've, than they've gotten recently, I think. Especially the 400 or so that were just laid off from Dick's, um, from yeah. Dick's, yeah. Dick's sporting goods, which is pretty amazing stuff. What's your take on all of that, Clay? You've been a bit quiet now. I'm sure you've been listening. I'm huh? sure you've got lots of ideas and things you think about what Joe's been saying. Well, you know, tennis is majors are much better organised. And I know Paul McNamee, who ran a friend of mine, who ran the Australian Open for a long time, tennis championship, really pushed to make that it's now known as the Grand Slam of the Asia Pacific. 
so so he did a great job with that. Um, we were talking about the other day for the LPGA. What staggers me is that having been to the caddy in the craft when I was such a poor person of average course that they're playing a major next week in France at the Evian, which is how can they not have a major championship in Asia on, on, on the LPGA? I mean, the best players are Koreans, largely. Not the best, but certainly three or four of the best, of the best six or eight. So perhaps they're the ones to lead the way and make the first proper major championship in Asia because it's, that makes way more sense and they ought to show the way for the men, really. But I, I think what Joe's saying, I think, is right, if I'm reading it correctly, is that it makes no sense to have three majors in America. Certainly not in 50 years' time. That's, you know, there's no way the game's going to be that way in 50 years' time, I don't think. It makes less sense with each passing year, doesn't it, Clates? Well, the rest of the world, are, you know, clear, clearly, as Joe says, the Chinese are going to produce players just by dint of the numbers they have um, and, and the effort they'll throw into it. So, you know, it just, it just isn't going to be this way in 50 years. And, yeah, but... Yeah, you know, the, there is no love for the PGA Championship outside of America. I mean, I know in, in Australia... There's not a lot of love for it inside of America. <laughs> I mean, people in Australia love the Masters. They love the British Open. They love the US Open, perhaps a little bit less, but they still... The PGA, no one cares about the US PGA Championship. So I think the US PGA would have a great chance to develop some real love for, their, for the tournament outside of America. But, of course, it's very difficult for Americans to see sometimes outside of America because that's where the world revolves. Well, how about it's really the, not, it's the television networks and that 2020 would have been the first year of a new TV contract for the uh, PGA of America. And i presuming, and Joe probably would think about these things more than I would and know more about it, but uh, I'm guessing that was kind of a tough way to start a new contract and that was part of their thinking. Well, that's probably that's probably true, um, and they could look. I mean, they could they could um, they could have a, a Ryder Cup PGA kind of back. To, you know, they could they could make it they could make it interesting. But I think they have to do it. I mean, it's going to take it's going to take some some pretty big stones to do. But they're going to have to do it if they want to maintain their. I've always said that if I ran a golf tournament or a, or a tour. I think about things the way Buffett thought about stocks, right? I mean, you want to buy stocks that have wide moats, and if you run a golf tournament or you run a tour, you want to create the largest moat possible around your tour or golf tournament. And I think the PGA of America probably has the, the probably the narrowest moat of all the majors. It's more a burn, isn't um, it, at the moment, yeah. <laughs> than a, than a moat. Yeah. Though, Joe, don't the one thing that the PGA has on its side is that PGAs around the world as organisations would happily band together behind them so that it's no longer the US PGA Championship, it is the PGA Championship of the world. Every country has a PGA. I know the PGA here in Australia would jump on that bandwagon in a heartbeat, wouldn't they, Clates, to be part of the well, major course, that belongs yeah. to all of us, not just America. Well, they would suit them and, you know, they're, they're small than, you know, in, in world terms, they're incredibly small. But, yeah, but I, mean, I think it would be a great thing for the championship. But So do I. Uh, and, and the PGA it would be, it'd be tremendous. And you, you hit Rod, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, you know, there's PGA professionals all over the world. Yep. And at the grassroots level, they could sell that championship in every country of the world. It's coming here in eight years. It's the greatest tournament in the world to every would, golfer who walks through a pro shop. I mean, it's to me. If I had that, if I had that brand, and I had I had nation, you know, organizations um, in growing countries like China and things. 
I'd want to make my brand, the PGA, whether it's a PGA, you can call it PGA, you can call it whatever. I'd want to make that the brand that people think, you know what, I got to go to my PGA Pro because that's going to make me better. And if that's the brand that people want to go to, I've done myself in America, but also globally, a hell of a job. So, and unlike the USGA, the PGA of America has their, in their bylaws to grow the game. Yes, that's exactly right. We often forget that, don't we? It really yeah. isn't the, the thing. There's one interesting thing I actually wanted to ask you about. There's a bunch of interesting things I'd like to ask you about. One of them being that you're probably going to get headhunted by the PGA now before you even become commissioner of the PGA Tour, which is interesting <laughs> in itself. Um, well, look, when, when I got cut off on Skype, one thing I did say was Jay Monahan is going to be the next commissioner of the PGA Tour. Oh, so, we heard yeah, that. We heard it. <laughs> oh, you did? Okay, good. good I'm still good. going, to, I'm going <laughs> to edit it out, but we did hear it. So. No, no, it's well known. It's, you don't need to cut that. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, no. Indeed. I've completely forgotten what I was going to ask you about. So, uh, Jay, Jay seems like a, a, more of a sports fan than the current commissioner, which is probably why I get more excited about uh, Jay and – because I feel like that's the thing that is lacking at times in Ponte Vedra is that they're just they just don't seem like fans. Yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, no, I, I, that's I put you in a tough spot there, but that's just my sense, and it sends, and he's more of a fan of sports. I think that well, my point is, I think it will help quite a bit because ultimately we sit around and gripe about these things, but we're doing it because. We're fans. We're not. We're not really thinking much about how to squeeze more dollars out of something or how to appease sponsors. We're just thinking about it from a fan's point of view. If you make the product as good as it can possibly be, believe me, the money will flow. Well. Exactly. Yeah. An interesting thing I read the other day, Joe. It might have been a link on your site, Shaq, about um, participation in the game. Was it? Was it a? What was the paper that did the big piece on how much trouble golf's in and people are walking away from? It? Oh, well, they've all done side. it. There've been, there been multiple lately. But one of the quotes in there was from an unnamed PGA Tour source who said, really, they wouldn't say it publicly, but really, the PGA Tour is not that interested in participation and growing the game. If that's true, Joe, in the long term, is that not a detriment? Is that not going to be detrimental to their own business? If golf doesn't grow, surely the PGA Tour can't continue to grow. I mean, there's never been a better time to be a PGA Tour golfer. So much money in the game. But will that continue to be the case if they don't take some of the responsibility for actually growing the game? Yeah, I think that that's yeah. I think that has to be inherent. I mean, it's look if golf is doing well, the PGA Tour is going to do well. Um, the other way around, I think is the point. Well, yeah, and but I think that um, I mean, look, there's you've you've talked about it on your on your podcast, but you know we had a we had a the National Golf Foundation said that you know with Tiger Woods and everything else, we're going to need a hundred new golf courses per month for 25 years or whatever to satisfy all the demands. And when that happens, um, I, you know, the Bryant Gumbel did a deal on HBO here in the States and it was funny. I don't know if Jeff caught it, but Jack, Jack Nicholas was interviewed and he goes, you know, I was doing 25 courses a year. Yeah. <laughs> That's not, and I was like, Hmm, That's the I wonder, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a, you know, there was a lot of really poor, ill-conceived golf courses built. And um, and the problem with that is, is when you have bad golf courses, they have water everywhere, and it's just, you know, that you have to ride a golf cart. And it just, it they're not what the game is about. They were just put up there kind of haphazardly. Um, you don't have fun. And, and so, so we need to call a lot of golf courses here in the States 
And, you know, we're losing golfers, but, I, you know, I, I think there's zero chance in 10 or 15 years you're going to say, wow, we don't have any golfers left in the country. Um, I, I, I agree. Pe- I think people are going to play golf. Yeah, well, that, that's um, exactly it's right. It's too good of a game. Is one of the mistakes we make, Joe, and Jeff's pointed this out a number of times on the site too, that is, is the, the target it seems, of everybody in the game is to try and get millennials, which was a term I wasn't familiar with till Jeff introduced me to it, to play the game. Would we not be better off? I mean, the reality of golf is, apart from those who come to it as children, most people take up the game later in life. Um, is there anything wrong with that? Could we not be targeting the 45 and 50-year-old people who have not played golf before and grow the game in that demographic? Well, I think that's fine, but I, I think the... Um I'll use the term inconvenient truth of golf is, is that we're trying to be all things to all people. And, you know, Mm. golf is a game that it does cost a little bit more, unfortunately. I wish it didn't, but it does. And, you know, I think we've we've sort of neglected our core group. Um, And that's tough, you know, that's kind of, that's a tough conversation to have. But I think that... um, you know, I think God. I mean, I think it's the greatest game in the world. Everybody should play golf, right? I mean, it teaches you self. It teaches you discipline. Teaches you honesty. Teaches you integrity. You know what we're doing to, with the first tee, which is not traditional golfers, but it's teaching these kids a lot about life and a lot about you know the game. The issue is, once they graduate from the first tee, can't afford necessarily to play the game, which is which. That's the that's the. That's the toughest thing about the sport of golf. Um, and, you know, you might be right. I mean, focus on the, on the people later in life. I, I think you've got to focus on, on, on – I think the women, women are in the workforce more than they have been in, in, you know, in the history of mankind. They are the incremental golfers. I mean, they're the most important group that really um, – that they're trying to get to, but they're the most important group there is, I think. Of incremental golfers. Yeah, well, because the more they work, the less time they've got for golf, which is one of the problems that does confront golf. Has golf always been a prohibitively expensive sport, Clates? Can you recall when you started playing? Was it, wow, this is an expensive game? Or I mean, Joe's talking about golf in America, I suspect. As an aside, I played with Mark Brody the other day, the stats guy we had on oh, the podcast. fantastic. Which was yeah. terrific. He was talking about the club he's a member at in New York, Pelham, I think, Pelham Country Club or Golf Club. Yeah. I think um, he said fifty thousand initiation and twelve thousand a year. Wow. I said, Mark. I said, if that was the case in Melbourne, there'd be three golf clubs. That would be it. If that, there'd be Royal Melbourne, maybe Kingston Heath, and maybe Metropolitan. There'd be three golf clubs because people just can't afford that and wouldn't pay it. There'd be a whole pile of public courses, and pretty much every private club would turn into a public golf course. Uh, but I mean, I think golf's. You, you can buy a great set of clubs on eBay for 200 bucks now. You can buy a great McGregor Wood for $13 like I did the other day. <laughs> and you can play really good public golf in Australia for 20 or 30 or 40 bucks a round. So, so golf in America, in Australia, you know, it's literally unbelievably expensive in America to play golf at a private club or you know, those crazy clubs. But golf, you know, Mark couldn't get his head around the idea. We played at Kingston Heath that, you can join this club for ten thousand dollars and play for four thousand dollars a year, which we think is expensive. I was going but, to say, I nearly had a heart attack when you said that. I pay four hundred a year. You know, it's in, you know, so 
it strikes me that club golf in America, certainly at the high end, of, you know, I'm not sure what it costs at the, the you know, the, the the medium end or the bottom end is incredibly expensive compared with the rest of the world. Because there's an entertainment. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, look, look, we're trying to, and, and Jeff's been around this piece of dirt, but we're trying to build a golf course here in Austin. And, Clay, you'll hopefully yeah. eventually be around it. Um, and we're using the right architects. I mean, we're, you know, I think we're doing everything right. And the land is, you know, the land we're doing in, in conjunction with the city. So we've got the land for free, but it's under almost all circumstances, it's going to cost $10 million a course. Yeah. Where's you know, the return I mean, come from? Can you make it? God, you're, you're in finance. Are you mad investing in golf? Well, I look, I love that. I mean, when I read something that, that there's an industry that I think is going to be around forever and they've got, you know, a golf course closing every 48 hours or something, I get kind of charged up, especially if I can create something great. Um, and I think great golf will endure just like a great, you know, piece of artwork. Um, so I think that you know I I get pretty jazzed up about that, and I think I think the numbers work. You're not gonna you know, no one builds a golf course to get rich unless they have real estate around it, except maybe Mike Kaiser, <laughs> who just yeah. who did it perfect, who did it totally altruistically. But now it's it's the greatest success story in golf probably. And I know, Joe, the exact same thing, the exact same thing happened at Bamboogle Dunes where Richard Tatler he said I don't really care if I don't make any money out of this thing as long as I break even I'll be happy, and you know. There's the one golf golf course in Australia that's making a lot of money because it's a yeah. great golf course, and it, you know, as we've said many times before, it goes back to what McKenzie said: build great golf courses, people will play. Make them boring, they'll give up. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that that's the mantra that golf has to have. Now, granted, my course has one huge disadvantage: it doesn't have sand, and sand yeah. is the as a magic. It's the it's the magic base. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's no question about that, is there? Um, you, you sort of touched on it a bit there too, uh, Joe. The fractured nature of the game. You mentioned it earlier that there's no one voice for golf. Hasn't that traditionally been golf's great strength? Yes, it's certainly it's probably its great weakness as well, but isn't it partly golf's great strength? The fact that the PGA Tour doesn't own any of the majors, isn't that a healthy thing for the game? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that it's a it's a it's a weakness. You know, and you can traditionally still point to it's a strength as well, but you know, look at the, you know, I always point golf and tennis are always compared to each other. Um, it's very similar, right? I mean, golf, the, the people who put the tour on, the ATP tour, um, they don't control their four majors either. It's, you know, different different people control them. So you have all these, um, you know, golf is basically ruled by the RNA, the USGA, the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, <laughs> the Masters. Mm. And then, um, you know, a, a few others of the world body. I think if golf had one voice, and that's why I said at the beginning, if you're a commissioner, I think you have to try to, as best you can, speak with one voice and get the parties or the clans or whatever you want to call it to speak with one voice. You're never going to merge them all, but I think you have to speak with one voice because the game will be better. Hmm. In every way, this game is endlessly fascinating, isn't it, Joe? And we've taken far more of your time than I meant to and have barely scratched the surface. I haven't even asked you yet about the radical idea you had of making the LPGA and the Champions Tour play the same venues most weeks, which is a ripping idea. Yeah, I think that, I think that that's, I think that's a good idea, right, Jeff? <laughs> I think it'd be awesome. I would love to see an event where they both, well, yeah. 
I'd like to see something other than 72 holes of stroke play every week, so I'm the wrong person to ask. But We did it down here in Australia, didn't we, Clates? The men's and women's new, uh, Victorian Open the last two years has been played concurrently. It's a tremendous event. Uh, I, mean, I mean, they had bigger crowds than, than the Australian women's Open the week before with a, with a much, much better field. Joe, in the end, the, women, the, the men and women played two courses. There was a cut, and they teed off alternate groups the last two days, and it was it was great fun to watch. So the last, group yeah, I mean, I think I think that's what they have to do. I mean, I think that's compelling. What about um, Jeff's point about seventy-two hole stroke play, Joe? It might be hard as a touring professional to get your head around the idea, but as a spectator, it'd be nice to see some different things. One, yeah, look, the, I, I think that's I think that's yeah, I think that's right. Look, I think I've argued that the Champions Tour ought to be sixteen events and then have six 72-hole stroke play events, but the 16 events or 12 events or whatever ought to be teams of six with 12 teams and have the first day um, scramble, second day best ball, third day they play sixums, and the, the best four out of six scores per hole count. So it keeps the Ben Crenshaws and the Ray Floyds and the Lee Trevinos relevant longer. Um and it's pretty fun to watch for the spectators and pretty fun to watch yeah. on TV, and you have massive scoring fluctuations. You're freaking uh, me out. What do you, where do you come up with this stuff? Have you run that by anybody? great. It is a oh. great idea. How would the players take to that? Um, well, the if champions you get them down one-on-one, on one, they, if you get them one-on-one, one, one on one, they like the idea. If you get them in a group, they're like, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Which, you know, they might be right. You'll be working long hours as commissioner as you individually go to each player with each idea and sell them on it without (laughs) without having to get them in a group. Joe, it's been fabulous. Will you come back? I feel like there's a million things. We haven't even touched on what you're going to do after golf. Absolutely. I'd I'd, I'd love to come on any time. You might be our fourth panellist, I think. Maybe we'll just do this each each couple of weeks. It would be terrific. It's been uh, good to chat to you today, and uh, thanks for taking some time. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Jeff, thanks, Joe. Yeah, and Jeff, as always, to you in the States, fantastic. Thank really, you, Rod. Really enjoyed that. And Clay, stand here. Always great to get your insights, mate. Thank you. Thanks, mate. And that's it for State Cheers, of the Game, episode 45. Um, creeping towards 50, Shaq, which is uh, extraordinary. Episode 45. Yeah. Uh, good to have you on board. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll be back to do it all again in a couple of weeks here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.